welcome to this week's episode of Best Camp of My Life, a podcast about MMA. Kind of. But not really. But kind of. This is your host, Fernanda Prates, and I regret to inform you that today there will be no one with whom to share the overwhelming burden of my existence. Meaning, there will be no guests. But I mean, you're here, I'm here, the voices in our heads saying we're never gonna be good enough are here. Might as well make it a party. First, though, some context about today's episode. On December 31st, I published a story at The Athletic. As I prepared to embrace the new year and all of its endless possibilities, I laid out my expectations in a post that I kid you not was titled, The World Hasn't Yet Ended, So Here's My MMA Wishlist for 2020. Trust me, the irony is not lost on me. Needless to say, reading it now was a bit of an experience. Not because there was anything absurd about the list per se, but because there was something a little absurd about literally everything else. Little did my hopeful, naive, slightly less inebriated 2019 self know that 2020 was about to be mercilessly unleashed upon her, rendering any exercise in imagination, optimism, or hope entirely futile. Oh, to be young and not caught in the throes of a global pandemic that happened to coincide with the rise of fascist science denialists. The good news is that, as hard as it may seem to believe, 2020 will end. In fact, it will end pretty soon. And I figured, what better way to celebrate that than going over the list and updating it with all the wonderful lessons of this wonderful year for my wonderful listeners. I know, I know. I, too, am often in awe of my own generosity. For real, though, I swear the list is not nearly as depressing as it may sound. We actually made progress in some of these items, and some of them didn't really get any worse, and I can absolutely guarantee that most of it sounds just as petty, silly, and ridiculous now as it did then. Give it a listen. Or don't. We're all just decaying matter anyway. Wish number one. Habib Nurmagomedov versus Tony Ferguson, finally. Well, let's just say that one really cracked me up. By the time I wrote the list, the fight between Ferguson and Habib had been set and canceled not once, not twice, but four times. For context, that is the same amount of times that Italy has won the World Cup. That is the same amount of number one singles that Barbadian songstress Robin Rihanna Fenty had in the Billboard charts in 2010. That's also the number of years that Donald J. Trump was given an office before being voted out like a fucking loser. Now, I know what you're thinking. Okay, but how is this supposed to give us context about Habib versus Ferguson? To which I answer, it is not. It has all been an elaborate ruse to bring up Rihanna and call Trump a fucking loser. Which I did. So I win. Unlike Trump, who lost like the fucking loser that he is. But I digress. Point is... Four is a lot of times for a single fight to be canceled. At that point, we all knew that the Chinese democracy of MMA endeavors was doomed, cursed, jinxed, hexed, damned. And yet, a fifth attempt was made, set to take place at UFC 249 the following April. From my write-up. Can I dare hope that the 174th time is a charm? Shall I, once more, expose this caffeine-soaked piece of coal that lies where my heart once was? Should I risk losing this tiny little scrap of sanity that I'm barely holding on to? 
Do I possess the type of foolishness and naivete that it takes for one to believe that good things happen sometimes? Yeah, I really don't even know how to break it to 2019 me. I guess congratulations on still barely holding on to that sanity, girl. As you may recall, by April this, she said, gesturing broadly, thing was already very much happening. UFC 249 still went on, but at a different date with different fights under entirely different circumstances than what the promotion had originally planned. That included, of course, the fight that shall not be named. Namar Gomedov had gone back to his native Dagestan, and amid travel restrictions and the whole, you know, terrible disease thing, he decided it wouldn't be exactly prudent for him to try to fight at that point. Ferguson, for his part, ended up fighting Justin Gaethje, and as fate would have it, he lost, paving the way for Gaethje to become the title challenger instead. Despite dealing with the death of his father, who tragically enough died from COVID-19 complications, Habib did go on to defend the title in 2020. He fought and beat Gaethje, but any of the hopeless masochists who were still holding out hope for the Ferguson fight got a swift reality check when Habib announced his retirement from MMA at the age of 32. Of course, there is such a thing as perspective, and given all that has happened, losing a fight just doesn't seem like that big of a deal anymore. It certainly doesn't even register next to what Habib and so many others have lost this year. Still, it kind of sucks. And after five years of waiting for a fight that is likely to never happen, I say we earned the right to be at least a little bit bratty about it. Wish number two, that people finally learn what a split decision is. Well, this one may just be the losing 10 pounds of MMA you're in wish list. I mean, it seems simple enough, right? It's not as ambitious as earning my first million or as uncontrollable as getting that manager spot or as cumbersome, really, as just not being such a fucking bitch, Jennifer. It's doable. And unrealistic beauty standards in a misogynistic society that likes its women neurotic and secure and broke aside, it is within reach. You don't really feel like you're setting the bar too high, and yet it just never seems to quite work out, does it? For those who don't follow MMA and somehow find themselves here, first of all, consider getting professional help, but also let me quickly walk you through what a split decision is. See, in MMA, you have three judges scoring a fight. In general, at least in leading US promotions like the UFC or Bellator or Invicta FC, the judges do their scoring per each individual round, meaning each five-minute round is given its own separate score. A regular fight in the UFC, for example, lasts for three rounds, while title fights in most main events go for five. The most common score per round is a 10-9, but a dominant round winner can get a 10-8 score or, in extremely rare cases, a 10-7. The judges don't talk to each other and are not to consider what happens, say, in round two when scoring round four. That means that a fighter can get their asses kicked in round one and be down 10-8 and still get a draw if they take the next two rounds by 10-9. It's also possible for a fighter who looks like they've been through a paper shredder to win a fight against an opponent who looks just fine because bruises in a face don't necessarily tell the story of what happened in each individual round. A split decision happens when two of the judges' scorecards add up to one winner and there is a dissenting scorecard for a different winner. It's simple, really. It's just how the math works out. 
A split decision isn't supposed to be a consolation prize or material proof that a fight was tightly contested, though it often does turn out that way due to the obvious fact that a fight that gets seen differently by different people is kind of close. Meaning a split decision isn't a deliberate score. The judges don't gather around and elect to hand one of the fighters a winning scorecard in order to make them feel better about themselves. They don't decide to issue this particular result because they simply don't decide anything collectively. A split decision is, essentially, kind of a glitch. And the reason why I say all of this is that still, in 2020, this seems to be like a complicated concept to grasp. Despite all of the attempts that I and several of my colleagues have made to explain this, we hear people, people who actually follow the sport and occasionally maybe even fight in it, mind you, say that a fight was, quote-unquote, so close that it should have been a split decision. Which, she said, aggressively rubbing her temples, is just not how this works. It is not how MMA or numbers or words work. Split decisions are a mathematical outcome, not a deliberate choice made collectively by a panel of judges. If my rage sounds familiar to you, it's because this has been my personal crusade for years. See, I'm not a mathematical genius or any kind of genius. I honestly still cannot tell a darts from an anaconda choke or handle basic directions. And I may or may not still be confused about how big boats don't sink. Split decisions, though? that I can get. As to whether there have been any advancements on this front since I made this list, I'd say, I guess. I will say that it hasn't bothered me that much recently, but it could just be that people not understanding the concepts of vaccines and face masks and, you know, the general shape of the earth has grown to be a bigger problem. Now, wish number three requires a bit of an explanation. It was originally just quote-unquote, the end of weight cutting, which I realized was so unrealistic that it required a more feasible follow-up. So I introduced a fourth wish, titled, okay, then maybe I can just hope that more fighters fight success in heavier weight classes. For the purposes of this episode, instead of trying to address the topics individually and failing at both, I'll just combine them and probably still fail, but using less words. Right off the bat, I'll tell you that 2020 wasn't the year in which I finally solved the issue of weight cutting in MMA. But since the idea is to update the list, I guess we can just start with the fact that, hey, at least we know there's an issue. A few months ago, myself and the athletic MMA team conducted an anonymous survey among 170 professional fighters. We asked several questions ranging from fighter pay to whether they have puked before or after a fight, an entry I may or may not have personally suggested, but one of the most revealing topics was probably weight cutting. Out of all the surveyed fighters spread across 13 different divisions, 66.4% of them said that they believed there was indeed a serious weight cutting problem in MMA. When it came to fixing it, however, it got tricky as an even bigger percentage of the fighters, 67.1%, didn't believe that banning the practice altogether was the solution. Some suggested creating more divisions. Others suggested, you know, reworking the current ones. Still, when I stopped to gather the data we had on the subject for a story, 
One quote from an anonymous Bellator fighter seemed to really summarize the conundrum for me. And I quote, I still think it's a problem. And one thing that would make it a lot safer is adding more divisions. That being said, I'm sure that it would work in the other direction too, with fighters trying to get down an extra five pounds rather than staying in their usual division. Or as another fighter from PFL said, and I quote again, I'm not sure what the answer should be, but the way it is right now is just bad. Then, as far as 2020 specific layers go, there's the fact that this is the year of the short notice opportunity. Amid travel restrictions and positive COVID tests, being available, ready, and geographically close has been a powerful combination for fighters who otherwise might not have even been in the UFC's radar, which is cool in the sense that it's given literal life-changing opportunities to people who may not have had them, but it's also less cool in that getting into a cage fight kind of requires some preparation. Other than the actual training, there are travel arrangements, bureaucracy, medicals, and of course, the weight cut. I talked about that in episode one of this podcast, so I won't go too deep into the whole short notice thing. But fact is that taking less minute fights has also meant, for some of these athletes, having to either go through big weight cuts in particularly short periods of time to meet the limit of their regular divisions, or in other cases, fight above them at a physical advantage against bigger competition. None of them, of course, are ideal scenarios, and both are examples of how tricky this whole thing is. I talked to a fighter who cut 17 pounds in less than two days to make a short-notice UFC debut. A process he said wasn't even that awful, considering he once had to cut 22 pounds for a title fight in a different promotion. I'm no medical doctor, but this kind of sounds like a lot of pounds. So, no. Unlike my patients to engage in civilized discourse with quote-unquote free thinkers, weight cutting didn't end this year. And I honestly don't think it ever will, or not as definitively as I half-jokingly suggested on that wish list. But I will say that I am kind of encouraged by the growing awareness around the very real risk of cutting weight and the fact that we're at least willing to have conversations about it. I know that kind of sounds like a bit of a journalistic cop-out, but I don't mean it solely in this abstract kind of way. While it's still hard to know exactly just how much damage the practice can directly cause on fighters' bodies and brains, long-term and otherwise, the amount of technology and science available to make those assessments has come a long way. The UFC's Performance Institute, for instance, has been doing some work on that front, helping fighters make their cuts more manageable and, in some cases, even encouraging them to move up. Unfortunately, we know that only a minority of fighters have access to that kind of attention and technology. For all the bad cuts we've actually seen with our own eyes in the major promotions, there are countless others taking place under much riskier conditions, some of which, as we've seen in the past, with tragic results. At the end of the day, though, it really is as simple as the more we know about how much a thing sucks, the more tools we have at our disposal to make it suck less. And I do think we're moving forward in that sense, which I know sounds a little counterintuitive considering she said, gesturing broadly, all of this, but I still believe there are enough of the good brains out there to make up for the ones that subscribe to Steven Crowder. Wish number five, no more shoeies on the official broadcast. Okay, so I'll call that one a partial win for 2020. But first, 
some context. For those who are also blissfully unaware, a shoey is an Australian tradition that consists of consuming alcohol beverages out of a shoe. As in a literal shoe. As in the literal thing that goes on a literal human foot. The shoey became a thing in the UFC thanks to Australian heavyweight Taito Ivasa, who did it after winning a fight against Cyril Asker in 2018. For those who watch Formula One, a lamentable habit I have picked up in my old age, Aussie racer and low-key snack Daniel Ricciardo has been known to celebrate podiums by adding champagne to his racing boots. He was even joined in one by fellow racer and snack Lewis Hamilton just this month. Now, before I enrage the great nation of Australia, I must state for the record that I really take no issue with the shoey itself. First of all, far be it from me to intrude in other people's cultural quirks. As a person who grew up eating chicken hearts, disregarding the notion of time, and watching women in tiny bikinis literally fighting for soap on daytime television, I don't feel like it's my place as a Brazilian to judge. But second of all, I am not even grossed out by it. I have been asked if I would ever do a shoey, and yes, I absolutely would. I will honestly take my alcohol in whatever vessel it's offered, which sounds more alarming saying out loud than it did in my head, but that's between me and my own sad reflection in the mirror. The point is, the shoey is fun and interesting, and I was fully on board with it when Tuivasa did it for the first time. Emphasis on first time. Not second. Not fifth, not eleventh. See, MMA has this thing where we will take a cute stick and just beat it with a stick until it dies, slowly and painfully. Then we beat it some more until it's nothing but a pile of stinking, gooey, unrecognizable mush. We did it with Bryce Mitchell's camel short thing. We did it with every single thing ever done by a Diaz brother. And we did it with the freaking shoey. The thing is, the shoey isn't a personality trait. It is not the entirety of Tuivasa's being. You don't have to make a shoey comment every time Tuivasa appears. You don't have to ask a shoey question at every Tuivasa press conference. There are other ways for the UFC to promote Tuivasa. There are other ways for us to identify and relate to a full human person who probably has several other non-shoe-related hobbies and aspirations. So when I ask for the end of shoeys in the UFC broadcast, it's not due to my sensitive stomach or my respect for basic human hygiene. I can guarantee you that I possess neither of those. It's due to the fact that bringing it up repeatedly is old and tired, and it frankly makes you look like the kind of person who still makes jokes about Kim K's sex tape and mocks Justin Bieber fans. There is literally not a single new thing to be gained or learned from the shoey. The shoey came... The shoey conquered. Now please let the shoey rest in peace. As for why I said that, as far as 2020 goes, this one was a partial win. Well, I did get my wish of not seeing a shoey in the official broadcast. While Tivasa did gesture for a shoe after his win over Stefan Struve in Abu Dhabi, he didn't immediately get one at the venue. He did do a shoey backstage, though, complete with spit from several individuals who kids on the internet apparently refer to as the Nelk Boys. Which is, uh, I guess, kind of an interesting choice of interaction at a time when the sound of a sneeze within a five-foot radius might as well be the somber swoosh of the Green Reaper's cape. But in fairness, Tuivasa was the one who seemed to orchestrate the whole thing. 
if he's okay with emboldening total strangers to extend him germ-filled footwear, all the power to him. Also, I have to pick my battles here. And as we head into year 85 of who the fuck is that guy, I realize asking people to just let shit go might be a lost one. Wish number six, better fight pay. Ha, yeah, well, that didn't happen. But we did get UFC fighters going back to work in the middle of a pandemic without collectively negotiating conditions or really having any other option to earn income as professional fighters. So there's that. Wish number seven. How about we just stop asking MMA fighters about matchups with pro boxers? Look, I get it. MMA is fickle. There aren't that many opportunities to make actual big money. And I can only imagine how frustrating it must be to look over and see some of the folk with the bigger gloves making a single fight what you could do in 10 years, maybe, if everything goes well. I mean, I work in media. I might not be able to relate to the whole being athletically gifted, looking good in a bikini and bringing pride to your loved ones thing, but looking longingly at other people's bank accounts, that I can get. But let's do just some... Simple math here, shall we? How many times have you seen a headline in which an MMA fighter talked about their desire to cross over and do a boxing bout against a big pro name? You probably can't really just come up with a number at the top of your head, right? I mean, Anthony Joshua alone has been linked to at least three different UFC heavyweights. Tyson Fury, Canelo Alvarez, Floyd Mayweather, we've seen all of them there mixed and matched with whomever is competing for a UFC title that week, with maybe a quote from a coach explaining why this time it could really totally happen. And now I ask you, how many times did it really totally happen? That's an easier answer because it's once, literally once. Conor McGregor pulled off a fight against Mayweather, and that was it. Again, I get it. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take, right? You can't really fault fighters for chasing that big payday, especially after seeing what it did for McGregor. But you know who I am going to fault? Us. We're the ones who keep asking the questions. We're the ones who keep making the headlines. We're the ones who keep clicking on them. We are the real enablers, and we've got to stop trying to make Fatch happen, Gretchen. Fatch is not going to happen. Well, unless that's a fight between UFC champ champ Amanda Nunes and undefeated pro boxer Clarissa Shields, then I say we keep trying to make Fatch happen just a little bit. Now, for the eighth and ninth items, again, a brief explanation. I'm going to combine the last two wishes on the list, since both relate to language. More specifically, to sexist or demeaning language being used as call-out fodder and promo-cutting material. Okay, so there's actually a pretty quick way to address this one. As a general rule, just don't use offensive words. Just don't! There are so many words out there that aren't offensive, so why not use literally any of them? If not the fact that you might actually be hurting people's humanity, consider the energy that you'd be saving for yourself. All that time explaining that you didn't really mean it like that or that you didn't really want to offend anyone and trying to come up with apologetic Instagram posts. Like, imagine just not having to do any of that. Imagine if instead of saying a thing that is historically racist, homophobic, or misogynistic, you just say something else. 
I know it sounds hard because a lot of the very privileged people who make a living out of scaring other privileged people make it sound hard, but it really isn't. There are so many words in this world that I can promise this. You will never run out of fun and creative ways to insult someone. And hey, did you accidentally end up using a word that you didn't know was offensive? There's a fix for that too. Listen to the people who tell you it is offensive. Consider why they are saying that. Perhaps throw in an extra couple of minutes to consider why you aren't personally offended, but they are. Apologize. For real, as in no ifs and buts. And move on. Again, it really isn't that hard. And here's another bit of encouraging news. You won't be quote-unquote canceled for saying a bad thing. In fact, if history has proven anything, it's that you can say and do several bad things and still go on to have a cushy job, guest spots on hit podcasts, and even your own personal army of frail but enthusiastic chin dwellers. But I digress. Point is, if these really are just words, if you really think they shouldn't have the power to hurt or offend, then you should have no problem parting ways with them. It's funny how every time there's some uproar about a slur, there are so many people ready to dismiss the complaints as petty or small or a waste of indignation. I just don't understand how there is still this idea that language can be separated from the human experience as if it wasn't the very thing that shapes and informs it. We organize around language. We mirror our existence around words. Of course they fucking matter. Of course they affect your feelings and impressions of people. That's kind of how they are designed to work. See, I told you there was a quick way to address this, but why stop now when we're just starting to have fun? In that post for The Athletic, I talked about the way female-specific language is often used in a way to diminish or weaken men. The word bitch requires no explanations, but I also discussed how more benign words like princess can still be a little problematic. Basically, I went full SJW, but my point was simply that we're so used to equating the female existence with weakness that often simply associating a man with a typically womanly trait is enough to constitute an insult. I also noted that it doesn't mean that those who use these expressions are necessarily irredeemable assholes who don't respect women. It doesn't mean that they are sexist monsters making conscious choices to be hurtful toward us. I don't ask or really expect that one day we will all get up fully woke and capable of saying any potentially harmful things. I, for one, am not even halfway woke, and I am very much capable of saying harmful things. We are born and raised into pretty much the same world, and we all do a lot of shit just out of habit. My wish really was just about making a conscious effort to examine those habits and how they fit into our larger culture. All these months later, I pretty much stand by that. Though I guess there really are worse words than you can use in this world than princess. But if I were to add something, it's that when we complain about things that seem small, it's usually because they are a part of something bigger. I can really only speak for myself here, but my issue has always been with how unwelcoming this sport can feel toward women sometimes. While we have these amazing female champions, which, shameless plug, I praised in my latest post for Fanbyte, MMA still has a very specific look. 
With the obvious exception of Invicta FC, which is run and made mostly by women, there is very limited exposure to female faces and voices. Sure, we have women fighting and we have women reporting, but how many women are there in the commentary booth? Or at tables where big decisions get made? Which athletes get most of the push and the promotion and what kind of push and promotion do they get? Who really gets listened and catered to? As both a journalist and a fan, I can honestly say that so much has improved and is still improving. But every now and then, we get these little reminders that we're not quite there just yet, are we? In fact, not to get somber, but getting somber already. We got one of those just recently. When UFC fighter Mike Perry got accused by ex-wife Danielle Nickerson of being emotionally and physically abusive multiple times during the course of their relationship. Not to even go into the discussion of whether or not he did it, the fact is that a story was published and the allegations were public. Still, Perry, who was then booked to fight Robbie Lawler, kept his fight. Asked about the alleged abuse, UFC President Dana White loosely said he'd heard about it and mentioned a restraining order that Nickerson had failed to obtain. And when Perry's opponent withdrew, rather than taking the godsend opportunity to at least take a breather and address the situation, the UFC simply gave him a new one. See, I never expected the UFC to go ahead and immediately get rid of Perry. Yes, there is due process, and yes, he may even be innocent of the accusations. I didn't expect, and again I'm speaking for myself, some swift irreversible punishment or even any stern public scoldings. At this point, what I did perhaps naively expect was as simple as an acknowledgement. Some recognition that even if by chance this didn't happen to Nickerson, it's a thing that happens all the time to so many women that it is real, and that it is serious, and worthy of at least being addressed. Instead, what we got here was pretty much what we got with Greg Hardy last year and with others before, a whole lot of silence and dismissal and indifference. A reminder that, okay, we're totally cool to keep existing here, but no, we aren't really the ones being catered or, most importantly, listened to. Which... Now that I think of it, kind of makes my whole princess diatribe look even sillier. There is obviously quite a big jump between awkward insults at a press conference and the discourse around domestic abuse. The latter is an incredibly serious subject that deserves time, energy, and consideration. Much more than I can give it here and now in the span of two minutes. But... For today, I guess we can just leave it at there are several ways in which the sport can feel hostile toward anyone who isn't a straight white man, and there are several ways we can work toward helping make changes. I say we start with the words and take it from there. And on that joyous and not at all heavy note, I say goodbye for today. I hope I didn't bum you out too much and or encourage you to consume alcoholic beverages out of shoes. If I did, please be sure to use antibacterial wipes, avoid having several strangers spit on it, and drink lots of water throughout. Also, consider never voting for fascists. This has been the best camp of my life. See you next week. <laughs>